0: Let's turn to Romans. We got to go. I'm going to have to guide you through some tricky territory tonight. So we got the Machira out. Cut the path forward. Romans chapter three, and we'll revert to a couple of passages in Romans two, two tiny phrases. Which serve to light a fuse that goes to some C4 that blows up a gospel of human deserving. That's a message. I'll see you. That was enough. Let's take a couple moments to do what we usually do, and that's prepare from within our own believer priesthood for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you'll clear the fog of our lives and speak very clearly into the midst of this congregation so that your grace can be glorified in our midst and that your word can be glorified in grace. We thank you for your grace, which is a power much stronger than sin and death and for your unconditional grace that overcomes all false gospels of human merit, human deserving, human earning, and even human action. So we ask that your Son will be manifested in this place and in us, so that we may truly go from this place and be a theater for the manifestation of the life of Jesus. Where we ask it in his name. Amen. I'm not a martial art expert. I'm interested in a, a little bit in the profession that I'm in. I have to be totally absorbed in the word of God and that's radical and it's a pleasure. But I think the analogy here is fitting. I know there's I've spoken before of the. Martial art of Wing Chun. You might have seen it on TV. The opponents are right close to each other. They're hitting each other so fast. They're always in contact with each other. And it's almost going on invisibly. And that's what's going on rhetorically in a kind of war between two gospels, between Paul and an interlocutor, which I think Campbell was right to call a teacher of... A gospel, a nomistic gospel, a gospel of justification by works. And also, so I call it rhetorical Wing Chun, and it's coming to a close here pretty soon. There's also a rhetorical kind of jujitsu jitsu going on. Jiu-Jitsu's main characteristic is the use of your opponent's energy against him. And I think both of these things are very clear analogies to what's going on with Paul and this teacher. I'm finding that Romans is one of the most difficult things to unravel because you have to ask the question, who's talking? Look who's talking. Who is talking? In Romans 1, 18 to 32, it's clear that Paul is not talking, but that the teacher is talking. In Romans chapter 2, Paul refutes and rebukes the teacher's wrath-filled, turn-or-burn sermon. And then he begins to dismantle the advantages or perceived advantages of the circumcised person over the Gentile. And in Romans chapter 3, the territory gets very tricky because there, there are some tiny phrases that are even said or tiny declarations that are said by Paul in the midst of a verse and responded to by the teacher. So that's why I call it a kind of wing chung. Short strikes, constant contact of the two opponents. It's going by very fast. There's, to stack analogy and metaphor on metaphor, there's also a saying that, mostly young people, I guess, say now. When a saying comes into vogue, it's popular for about two weeks. So by the time I catch up on some of the sayings of the kids or whatever, it's gone by the time I catch up with it. And one of those sayings is called, it's lit. And I'm not sure, it probably has some vulgar things connected to it, but I'm going to just take take the word and say, Paul's weaponry that he uses is mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, to the demolition of high things, meaning high places where idolatry is practiced. And so he likens his weaponry to a kind of explosive. And that's in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5. That's very significant because I believe Second Corinthians was written very shortly before Romans, and I think Paul already had Romans developing in his mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians. That may be an interpretive trail to follow sometime, if not by me, by one of you. And I think there'll be, there's some gold in that, in them thar hills to find. And right here the explosive is lit. It's lit in two particular phrases in Romans chapter 2. And by the time it gets to Romans 3.20, it's pretty much blown up the whole gospel of this nomistic teacher. But I found some things this week that are earth shattering to me. So I'm still recovering from being shattered. And it's In Romans chapter 10 where there's some voices that are going on there that are not Paul. There is a gift of the Holy Spirit, which is called the discernment of spirits. And that gift is more important and more significant and more necessary in the interpretation of the word than in the interpretation of people or the identification of where people are coming from. One of the examples that we have is from Job. We of her, a certain person, it's an obvious one, says to God, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll trade for his own life. And we'd say, well, the scripture says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll trade for his own life. But we better read it carefully because Satan said that. Satan said that in an accusation of Job to God. And so I think we better know who's talking. The speakers in Job are often speaking viewpoints that are completely antagonistic to God's grace and mercy. And that includes Eliphaz, Bildad, and then Elihu comes in and he voices God's viewpoint quite well. And then of course, then the speaker is Elohim. We have Job complaining, but we also have Job saying some right things. We have Job saying some wrong things. We have him crying and saying, that he wished a day had never come when somebody came out of the birthing suite to tell his father that a man child was born. In other words, he wishes he was never born. And that's not usually the will of God for our lives to be in an attitude like that. So we have to discern the spirits. Now, what has happened is a trend in theology has come about called a canon within A canon. So that within the canon of Scripture, they say there's a canon within the Scripture. I do not agree with that. I think what we have to do, though, is interpret who's talking at each juncture of Scripture. And it's never trickier, never trickier than here. And in Romans 4, and most notably and shatteringly to me, but it's a good kind of shatter, Romans 10. I may hit that Sunday. Depends on how good you listen tonight and tomorrow night. So with the planting by Paul, of the momentous phrases, first of all, in Romans 2.16, where he uses the word dia Christu, dia Christu Jesu, and see, I did the last word in Greek, see if you can discern the spirit. That's an English transliteration, English transliteration, Greek, that's how. Messed up, my mind is. But Dia Christu Jesu. In other words, there will be a day in which the secrets of people will be evaluated according to the teacher. But then Paul inserts a little phrase there, and it's a real deadly strike because he says that is deadly to the teacher's legalistic gospel. He says in Romans 2 16, in that parenthesis, according to my gospel, that occurs by Jesus Christ, dia Christu Jesu. In other words, the judge is the crucified Lord. The judge is the one who has made sin for us so that we would be made the righteousness of God. So Paul is intimating that the gospel indicates a last judgment in which the only outcome for all humanity is acquittal and justification. And he proves this so, But I'm saying that just to say that the fuse that blows this gospel of the false teacher into smithereens is lit right here in 2.16. It's also lit in 2.29, where the true Jew is identified as not only circumcised in flesh, but in heart. The teacher even goes so far as to say that a true Jew is circumcised in his heart, and in the flesh, that is the male Jew. But Paul inserts a phrase that is going to become a key phrase throughout Romans, as this is a key phrase throughout Romans and throughout Paul's epistles. And it's this little word, en pneumati, by the Spirit. A circumcision not only in heart, but performed in the Spirit or by the Spirit. So we have a divine... Grace in the final judgment and a divine power in the Christian life or the spiritual life. It is by the spirit that a person becomes a true Jew, male or female. So with the planting by Paul of the momentous phrases, dia Christu Jesu and en pneumati in Romans 2.29, Paul has already lit. It's lit. The fuse that blows the false gospel to smithereens. Or we could say that he has already laid the groundwork for a universalization of God's good news as proclaimed by Paul. If Jesus Christ is the agent in the last judgment by whom the judgment is made and the one who conducts the judgment himself, then no wrath awaits anyone At that time he will show in Romans 5 9 that we are rectified or justified by Christ's blood his death his faithful death and even more we are saved from wrath that is saved from any possibility of wrath by his life his resurrection life in which Jesus Christ serves as an advocate for all human beings at the right hand of God in Romans eight thirty four. We hit that a little bit Sunday in first John two one and two. And if it is by the Spirit that the heart is circumcised, if it is by the Spirit that the heart is circumcised, and if God's promise in Joel two twenty eight is to be believed, and it is, God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. God pouring out his spirit on all flesh means that by the spirit, all flesh is circumcised by a circumcision, not made with hands says Colossians two eleven, a circumcision not performed by human action, but it's called the circumcision of Christ. It cuts away from the human being, the whole of the Adamic ontology, the whole connection to Adam in whom all die and it brings all into Christ in whom all are made alive. Now the upshot of what's where this is going is that you are going to be taken into an eternal perspective with God and see this gospel as even now being Fulfilled in God, as even now the reality in God, as even now the reality in God, and a reality yet to be fully manifested in time and at the judgment seat of Christ, which is the last judgment. So then, the weapons in the apostles' arsenal certainly are mighty through God mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds the stronghold in this case a gospel that is a gospel of human deserving that takes away the glory of God it's actually against the knowledge of God the true knowledge of God and it's a demolition weaponry that explodes high fortresses High places in the Old Testament is where people practiced idolatry. Paul is identifying the gospel by this teacher as an idolatry, which idolizes human performance and steals God's glory. Now, there's another gospel that he people assume Paul didn't hit this one. I beg to differ with them and say he did hit it directly. It's the gospel of justification by human faith. That is not Paul's gospel. And let me even just give you hints of things to come. It is not Paul who says, if you believe in your heart, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, future tense. That's not Paul. There's another speaker here. You know, what Paul says when he just gave the pristine account of the gospel to some pagans that just found themselves in Christ, you know what he said? He said, by grace, you have been saved. Not if you believe in your heart and if you confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Now, I say by grace, unconditional grace, you have been saved through faithfulness which isn't even of yourselves, not even of yourselves. So there's not only a combat, a combat going on between a gospel of works of the law justifying, but there's also one far more subtle going on in which missionaries are required. And if they're not there, then people die without Christ and go to hell. Because how will they hear unless someone is sent? That's not from Paul. That's not Paul. The others say, well, you know, there's people that haven't heard. And Paul said, have they not heard? Of course they've heard. The the whole world has heard. Meaning that if hearing is required for salvation, Paul says, then everyone's heard. Because salvation is already wrought for all. Paul is far more of a universalist than you thought. And you thought, you knew Paul was a universalist. And so did I. Paul is not a Unitarian, though. He's a Trinitarian Universalist and attributes salvation to the triune God. Equally to each member of the triune, the triunity that is God. With the centrality being, of course, Jesus Christ. So if you're going to want to find a human response to God's action in salvation, you're going to have to look at Jesus Christ and nowhere else. It's his human response of obedience to the death of the cross that's the only human response required for salvation, and it's already been wrought. So already has a lot more bearing on it now than we thought before. Maybe you already knew this. I didn't. Or if I did know it, I couldn't articulate it yet. I'm starting to tonight. Let's just say tonight it's lit. Or as they say, it's lit, fam. Which means, hey, family. Now. Now I know. Now, don't come up to me afterwards and say, that's not what it means. I'm telling you what it means. It means that now. (laughs) It's not going to mean anything in about three weeks anyways. There will be be another saying that will take over. So. I have a terrible bias, too, I must confess. I have a terrible bias, and that is I have a, a, I'm biased toward the English language. I really like it. I love it. I, I've studied it. I majored in it in college. It's a way of articulating, and so I still love it. Sorry. So I know you think that's bueno. So it's lit. Paul has already planted enough C4 to use an explosive analogy in the teacher's gospel to blow it sky high and the fuse has been lit. He's also planted a mustard seed to use the parabolic illustration. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into the biggest tree of all, the biggest shrub, we might say, of all of the spice shrubs And Paul's already planted a mustard seed that's going to grow to that largest tree. By the time it gets to Romans 11.32, he'll be able to say, God shows mercy to all. God will have mercy on all. So with the introduction of Paul, of the auspicious phrase, by the Spirit, In Romans 2.29, Paul has effectively demolished any purported advantages of the Jew over the Gentile. Now, here's where I need you to be reminded of a caveat, a warning. I have to warn you about this because I don't want this misinterpreted. And the first thing that I want you to be aware of is the most well-worded by, I think, Leander Keck. KECK in his Romans commentary and he says Romans 2:17 to 29 is not emphasis on not Paul's indictment of Judaism as such rather he uses this indictment of the hypocrisy of a particular type of Jew to express the idea that simply being a Jew does not automatically confer privileged status in God's impartial judgment. Now, the point is that I want to make here is that this is not an indictment of Judaism. The Jewish Christian teacher that Paul combats is not a representative of Christianity or of Judaism. He's like the representatives of a kind of Hellenized Judaism, a kind of a, a judaism that's a syncretism a mix of a lot of different things and they had ideas that were a mix of hellenized or greek and egyptian mythology so that they believed in an eternal hell with flames and fire never is that found in all the old testament Never is it found in Paul. Never did Jesus refer to it as a reality, but only in a way to subvert it as a mythology, as Luke 16 says. So the second thing to remember, and it's a warning or a caveat, is to keep this in your remembrance that Paul is intentionally reducing, if not totally eradicating, The sense of privileged status, which has led some, but not by any means all, of the Jewish Christians in Rome at the time to a kind of haughty elitism, which leads to harsh judgments on their Gentile Christian siblings, including the judgment that they're still up for the wrath of God coming upon them because they're not circumcised. The third thing is that the apostle has already planted the seeds, and this is kind of a reiteration, especially with the phrases by and through Christ Jesus in Romans 2.16 and in and by the Spirit in 2.29, for the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the mystery in toto, the total mystery, that is according to God's intention to sum up everything in Christ Jesus and in that recapitulation to reconcile all things in the heaven and on earth in him that's ephesians 1:9 to 11 colossians 1:20 and romans 16:25 to 26 paul's intention if we're going to do an intentionality analysis of paul is to apply this universal and eternal intention of god we are applying and paul is an eternal and universal intention of God to a temporal and local situation in Rome where it used to be said that all roads lead. If the circumcision can be considered uncircumcised by a violation of the Torah, and if the uncircumcision can be considered circumcised By the doing of the Torah, as the apostle has demonstrated, then what happens is the ruling out of both circumcision and uncircumcision. He does that more dramatically in Galatians when he says, circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. But a faithfulness that works by love. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ working by love, by which he died for the ungodly, so that God justifies the ungodly. That's what counts. It isn't circumcision or uncircumcision as labels of Gentiles or Jews, but a new creation, says Galatians 6.15. And that means the Israel of God in 6.16. 6.16 of Galatians is what I call the height of Paul's audacity. Now, if the circumcision can be considered uncircumcised by a failure to fulfill the law. And if the circumcision or the uncircumcision can be considered circumcised by the doing of the law. And more importantly, if real circumcision is not performed by human hands at all, but by the spirit as Paul has effectively demonstrate the teacher is now on the spot. We might even say he's on the ropes. And that's where it gets very tricky here. So you're going to have to follow this, and it will be in print so you'll understand it. And I got a lot of help from Douglas A. Campbell in his book, which I had to reiterate a little bit about. I, I've got some things where I'm just a little different from him. But Romans 3.1, Paul is talking here. And he, this is Paul. He's essentially, if I might paraphrase, he said, tell me, teacher then what does the Jew have over the Gentile? What does he have over the Gentile? Then he even says, or let me put it this way, what advantage is there in ritual circumcision then? The teacher answers this, well, much in every way. There are many advantages and there's many ways the Jew has an edge on the Gentile. He says, first of all, He's going to list a bunch of things. The teacher says, and I used to think this was Paul, but it's the teacher. First of all, they were entrusted with God's oracles. They were entrusted with God's sayings, his logia. They were entrusted with the Old Testament scriptures, in other words. They got the Bible. I know a lot of preachers that have the Bible, in it ain't no advantage at all. The teacher answers, well, much in every way. First of all, they were entrusted with the Bible. Or God's sayings. So Paul comes back. Now this is wing chung. There's a lot of hitting going on here. And you got to really kind of slow down. And do slow-mo recap of the action. Paul is now saying this in verse 3. So. What if some were unfaithful? What if some of the. Special elite people. Were unfaithful. Now he's going somewhere with this. There's a line that's drawn from here that goes all the way to Romans 11 where he shows that God has temporarily hardened a part of Israel. So some did become unfaithful. But he did it for a universally salutary reason so that all the Gentiles would come in and then all Israel would be saved. We've seen that already in Better Call Paul. So Paul says this. So what if some were unfaithful? Does their unbelief... Now he's talking about unbelief. Make the faithfulness of God. That's at issue in Romans. The faithfulness of God is at issue in Romans because the gospel apocalypses the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of faith so that you're justified by the human act of believing or confessing. But God's righteousness, which the psalmist said, I'll talk about all day long. Romans is God's righteousness all day long. No breaks. So he says that's that's where it's going. You can draw a line all the way to Romans eleven thirty one to thirty two. Does their unbelief make the faithfulness of God ten pistin ineffective? Now, whether the teacher sees this, or whether the reader knows it or not, this question hits the crux of the matter of human action and human response in God's gospel, which will take us to Romans 10, possibly by Sunday. So, does the unbelief, or we could say the infidelity or unfaithfulness, of some Jews and some Gentiles, for that matter, Have the power to nullify God's faithfulness. If you follow this very far, you're going to find out Paul is saying, does belief or unbelief have anything to do with God's faithfulness in salvation? If you follow it. That's my job, is to follow that thing, to follow that lead wherever it goes. But you know where it goes? It goes to places that are controversial. So don't tell anybody. I'll whisper this thing in secret to you tonight so you can shout it from the housetops when the time comes. Does the unbelief of some Jews and some Gentiles, for that matter, have the power to nullify or render God's faithfulness ineffective? And again, this goes to an even deeper question. Does individual human belief or individual human unbelief have anything to do with God's salvation? This also goes to the subject of God's covenant. That is the covenant that he made with Abraham. We're going to find out in Romans 4 that it isn't what you think. It has been taken throughout history, especially since the Reformation, but really all the way since Paul, when there was a group called the Righteousness by Faith crowd, the Righteousness by Human Faith crowd. They think that when it says God spoke to Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, they think that means he was justified by his faith. And that's not what it's saying at all. It is saying, well, we're going to get into Romans 4 pretty soon. I've got the tracks already running into this, but let me just keep cutting a path. What you, I'll tell you just another hint. God is saying, your faith, your trust in me is an approved way of living. And that trust in God, which was the basically the spiritual life, his full entrusting of himself to God, his full trust in God, was an approved way of living before he was circumcised and after he was circumcised. So circumcision didn't have anything to do with it. And he was not justified. It said God considered his faith or his trust or his faithfulness or his constant faithfulness to the point where he brought glory to God as rectitude, as an approved Living because God is not pleased by anything except faith. That's just a hint. It's got you wondering, doesn't it? Good, good. There'll be answers. Now, if I was a gimmick preacher, I'd be doing this to keep you coming. But I don't care if you keep coming. That's the thing. I just want to be faithful to God. I just want to be faithful to the word. I want to teach Romans faithfully and I don't care. You say, well, then if nobody comes, there won't be any offerings then. Uh, I don't care about that either. I really don't. You know why? I'll just go somewhere else. That's never been a problem. But here we have it. This also goes to the subject of God's covenant. It's going to come up with Abraham in Romans 4. And the question comes up, is that covenant a bilateral contract? Is it a bilateral contract or is it a unilateral covenant? Did God say, I will make you the father of many nations? Or did he say, I'll make you the father of many nations if you believe in me? Did he say, I will bless all nations in your seed, which is Christ, if you do something? Or did he just say, all the nations will be blessed in your seed? period over now 104 Christ is the righteousness not the law anymore so that question comes up in romans and it comes up in our time is god's covenant a bilateral contract or is it a unilateral promise and we'll find that it's a unilateral promise how about this? The answer has already been given in Romans 1, 1 to 4. And in Romans 1, 17. the gospel of God about his son involves an apocalypse of God's righteousness. From faithfulness, that's his faithfulness, God's faithfulness, to faithfulness, that's God's faithfulness, demonstrated in Christ. into which the Spirit brings both Jews and Greeks into that fidelity. Paul will later bring home with great effect and power that the salvation of all of Israel occurs in this way. He says, this is how God saves all of Israel. He gathers them all together and he convinces them to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. No, that's not what he says. He says in Romans eleven twenty six and 27, the liberator comes out of Zion and he takes ungodliness right out of Jacob. Who does that? God does that. Does Jacob repent of his ungodliness? No. The liberator comes from Zion and takes ungodliness out of Jacob. When does he do it? When he fulfills my covenant with them when the, in the day when I take away or forgive their sins, he says. Don't worry, we've got plenty of time to fan this out and to teach this out, but it's going all the way to Romans eleven twenty five to 27. You see, this is how the left flank plus presses toward the right of the center of Romans in Romans eleven, twenty-five to 36. Now the teacher's quick to reply. Let's get back into the thicket here. We're going to find that there is a ram caught in this thicket and that the ram is also a lamb. And we will find that at the heart of Romans, there is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world right at the heart of the heart of Romans. Just like at the heart of the heart of Revelation, the heart of the heart of John's gospel, there's a lamb. Verse four, you can almost hear the bluster in this teacher, of oh, certainly not. Meganoito. He might even be Pentecostal and say, certainly not. I don't, they always have to add syllables. Maybe they didn't really get the gift of tongues. I don't know. They have to add syllables. God must be true. Now he's going to quit. Listen, here's where it gets tricky because he quotes a verse, but so does Satan quote verses. Does it not say his angels will bear you up? lest you dash your foot against a stone, so jump. He says this, certainly not. God must be true. And the word true alethes means faithful also. He's alluding here to Psalm 51.4 where David refers to God as being right and just and justified in passing sentence upon him for his sin against Uriah the Hittite. The adultery of Bathsheba but more devastating the murder of Uriah. David says, and he's quoting David, he alludes to Psalm 51.4, God must be true. And then he he alludes to Psalm 116.11, a little phrase here, even if everyone is a liar, God remains true, even if everyone is a liar. One day, David had a panic attack in Psalm 116.11. He said, I said, during my panic attack, all men are liars. He was a leader. He looked around him. There were people unfaithful to his leadership. There were people conspiring against him. He heard him whispering in the antechambers. He was a little bit paranoid. He said, everybody's a liar. Something David said in the course of a panic attack. So let's look at four again. Certainly not. The unfaithfulness of some will not nullify God's faithfulness. God must be true, faithful, even if everyone in the human race, that is, is a liar, as it is written, that you, God, may be justified by your words and overcome when you are judged. When is God judged? Today. When is God judged today? When people take the name of his son in a curse, or in surprise, or in derision, or in scorn, or in comedy, or in drama. They are judging God as unworthy. Today is the day of man's judgment, but God will overcome in the day that he is judged. He will be justified in all of his sayings. So there's right in this as it is written and David is speaking here that you God may be justified by your words and overcome. That is when the case when you are judged. The teacher is quick to defend God's right to judge, but you know what he's going to do here? He defends God's right to judge with wrath the human race, the world. Of course, he's not in the world. He and a few buddies that are circumcised and fulfilling the law are going to bypass that judgment. They're going to be rewarded. The teacher is quick to defend God's right to judge and to pass sentence of condemnation on the unfaithful or the unbelieving. The unbeliever goes to hell. In other words, the truth of the gospel, however, is that everyone indeed is a liar. He's going to prove that in Romans 3.10 to 18. He said, hey, teacher, you and I, we both preach from the Old Testament. We both publicly announced that everyone is under sin. Under sin. Hupo plus hamartia. Under the power of sin. And so in their mouth is the poison of asps. They're, li- they're all liars. So Paul is going to bring it there in Romans three ten to 18. So the truth of the gospel is that everyone is indeed a liar and that God has acted in Christ to rectify them all, <laughs> not to judge them with damnation. Moreover, it is God who is ultimately justified in justifying the ungodly. God is justified in justifying the ungodly because of the death of his son who became sin for them in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and because Christ died for the ungodly. So God will be justified in justifying the ungodly. He does not justify their ungodliness, he rectifies the ungodly. Because the death of his son who became sin, second Corinthians five twenty one, reiterated in Romans eight, two and three in a different way, where sin was condemned in his flesh in his death, and Jesus Christ is said to have been justified by being raised from the dead, as Second Timothy. That First Timothy three sixteen says. Now I'm bringing in a whole. I'm scattering a whole lot of seeds here tonight. So we're gonna. I'm gonna actually take all of these and watch them grow. Those who accuse the gospel of the un- universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, which we abbreviate as USSJC, and those who criticize the gospel of the universal impact of the cross of Christ found in a very succinct statement in Colossians one twenty, by the blood of his cross, he, by the peace made by the blood of the cross, God will reconcile everything in heavens and earth, thrones and dominions on down, to himself. Those who accuse the gospel of God are actually accusing God of the very injustice that they're trying to Preserve the justice of God and they're always talking about this God is just. Well, yeah, He is. He's just in justifying. Because there was this little judgment called the cross that makes God just when He justifies those who are of the faithfulness of Jesus and not of their own faith in Romans three twenty six. That's coming. So God will be vindicated. When will he be vindicated? In the last judgment. For justifying all of the ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly in Romans 5, 6. Today, now, human history we call it in the present. During the turn of the ages while the old evil age is still in spasm. Just before it goes all together. God is being judged in the court of human and angelic opinions. Satan accuses him. Satan accuses man to God. He accuses God to man. Satan is an angelic minister. And he has his ministers that agree. But the gospel, and listen carefully to this. Today, God's gospel and its ministers, its preachers, are being judged and slandered as heretics. But the gospel and its true ministers will be vindicated on the day of the Lord Jesus. But how does God vindicate them? Not like you think. Not by retributive violence, but by the mercy that God shows to all. He doesn't have to say, I told you so. Those preachers told you so. He just does it. And they say, oh. So the gospel and its true ministers will be vindicated on the day of the Lord Jesus, not by retributive violence or the retribution of violence and wrath against the accusers, but by the mercy which God shows to all. The mercy that God shows to everybody obviously vindicates the gospel, which is God's mercy to all. God is much more merciful than anyone ever imagined. So by the teacher's allusion, A-L-L, although he was in an illusion, I-L-L, the teacher's allusion to these verses, he's essentially saying that the injustices performed by us human beings only highlights or serves to confirm God's justice. So Paul says, okay, he's taking the energy of this guy's declaration. He's going to pull him. He's already coming at him. So Paul says, let me just help you along here. Oh, into that wall. This is what the teacher thinks. And so in verse five, Paul says this, he replies and says, but if our wrongdoing demonstrates God's righteous justice, What should we conclude? Now he's using first person plural. It's you and me, teacher. We're going in the same direction. What should we conclude? He does the same thing to Peter. Peter, you and I, we both know we're Jews and we're not sinners like the Gentiles. But we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Don't we know that? We know that. Peter's not going to say, well, no, that's not true. He's got to say it. Same with this preacher. So he says, if our wrongdoing demonstrates God's righteous justice, what should we conclude then? That God is unjust to bring wrath on us then? My evil makes God look good. So why does God want to thump me for my evil? Because I'm making him look good. Paul's saying. And then he says, in parentheses, I'm speaking by a human analogy. He says the same thing in Romans 6.19. I'm using human terms. I'm speaking in a human analogy because of your infirmity. You can't just hear the truth straight out. I got to use analogies. That's not saying that I've used analogies tonight because you guys wouldn't understand otherwise. I'm just using them because I don't understand without them. But here he has it. Then Paul says God is unjust. The teacher comes back, this is Wing Chun, it's still going on, it's still going on. The teacher says, of course not. Then how could God judge the world? In other words, he assumes God is going to judge the world in wrath, because they deserve it. You say, how do you know he thinks that? Because let's follow. This is what the teacher thinks. God will judge the world by inflicting his wrath which is a judgment that he assumed, perhaps up until now, that he and other true Jews will escape. Usually when you have these kind of teachers that are legalistic, only their little group survives. Only their denomination makes it. So the church becomes the salvation. It becomes an ecclesiocentric salvation rather than a Christocentric salvation. And a whole denomination says that the church is the mediation of salvation. So you've got to be confirmed in this church, baptized into this church, follow a few of the laws of this church in order to be saved because the church is your salvation. No, it isn't. You forgot something. God sent his son to save the world, not the church. And Christ is the savior, not the church. Now. The beat goes on. Let's call it this. The beating goes on. In Romans 3, 8, he actually thinks that their condemnation is deserved. I'm trying to unravel this. This is seen as the teacher's thought continues in 3, 6 from 3, 6 from 3, 6. He says, well, then how can God judge the world? And then he goes, let's skip now right to the end of 3.8. He says, their condemnation is deserved. Paul says something, but he doesn't even care. He says, their condemnation is deserved. He's stuck on that. But here's what Romans 3 7 says. Paul is speaking again. He says, If the truthfulness of God is amplified to his glory by my lie, that is, by the lie that the world has bought. In Romans 125, why am I, Paul speaking as the world, also being judged as a sinner? Paul is actually saying, why cannot I be justified by my lie? Why can't I be justified by my lie? Because my lie shows God to be truthful and just. I'm doing God, uh, I'm bringing God glory by my lie. Because next to my lie His glory is manifested and highlighted. Of course, this is absurd, but it's Paul's argument. He's trying to reduce the gospel of this preacher, this teacher, into absurdity. And so, if the truthfulness of God is amplified to his glory by my lie, why am I also being judged as a sinner? Why does God turn around and judge me for doing him a favor? All of this is going to flip over to the other side and say, if, I'm, if it's absurd for me to be justified by my wrongdoing, he's going to show it's just as absurd for me to be justified by my right doing. We're not justified by our human action at all, but by God. And then he says, am I doing, he's, he's saying, why can't I be justified by my lie? And am I doing, aren't I doing a righteous service to God by continuing in falsehood? But according to the teacher's reasoning, the world will be judged by God's wrath. That's the point. They deserve it, he says. And we'll see this in Romans 3.8. But according to the same reasoning, why can't God justify the world for its lie if its falsehood accentuates God's truthfulness? How can God be just and punish those whose lying lives bring glory to God? The apostle is getting, here's some, this is pretty fancy martial arts. This is the martial art of an old master. Like the Chinese say, the year 80, the 80th year of a person's life is the beginning of his ability. This is Paul in some sophisticated theology. Paul now says in verse 8, Indeed, he says, why not just say what we, Paul and his gospel missionary partners, are reported slanderously to be saying. Why not just say what we, Paul, the gospel preacher, and other gospel preachers that preach the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, as we are slanderously reported to be saying that we should do evil things that good may come. The teacher says he doesn't even answer that question, although he believes with the accusers that Paul's gospel teaches people to go out and do evil and God will bless you anyways. Paul will take that question up in Romans 6, one and say, okay, shall we continue in sin that God's grace may abound? May it never be? Of course not. And he goes in to show that his gospel is not only liberating through unconditional grace but it's transformative through God's unconditional love and power so the teacher doesn't even he's still stuck on verse 6 how will God judge the world he said their judgment is deserved that's the whole point it's deserved the whole point it's deserved and now i will make a movie recollection one more time the end of unforgiven what a strange name for a movie William money got his Spencer rifle pointed six inches away from the face of the sheriff little bill who killed his friend who I can't remember so we'll just call him Morgan Freeman and he's gonna pull the trigger but little bill says I don't deserve this I was building a house And William Money says, deserves got nothing to do with it. Now, that's a terrible way to illustrate (laughs) the point. But we can say it, detach it from the Unforgiven movie, and bring it to Romans. Deserves got nothing to do with it. Meaning, you don't go to hell because you deserve to go there. And you don't go to heaven because you deserve to go there. You don't get the wrath of God because you deserve it. But you don't get the grace of God because you deserve it. Deserves got nothing to do with it either way. It's God's action in Christ from pure mercy. It's not according to righteous deeds which we have done. And it's not according to unrighteous deeds which we do which makes us deserving of wrath. It's according to God's mercy that he saves us and he saves us all by his mercy. The teacher repels Paul's reasoning here. And he simply insists that the world to him, that's his worldview. Imagine having a Christian worldview, you say, and you advertise it on the radio. We are a ministry with a Christian worldview. Come to our school. We have a Christian worldview. What's your Christian worldview that the world's going to be damned into hell because it deserves it, but you can escape it by coming to our church, our school, listening to our radio, sending a love offering So, what shall we conclude then, Paul says? We, he's saying now, first person plural, you and me. jiu now, we're both going in the same direction. You can't help it now. You're coming my way. What do we conclude then? Are we, he's saying now, you and I, you and I as Jews, we're both Jews. You and I as Jews. What can we say? Are we better off? Than they are. That is the world that deserves wrath. Are we better off than they? The teacher now, (laughs) he's still holding on, but he's just barely holding on because this is what he says. Well, not in every respect. And that's Campbell's translation, and I checked it out, and it's it's his translation on page 589 and his note on page 1091. Then Paul says, because we, you and I, teacher, We got something in common as those who proclaim the truth of the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul did before his so-called call or conversion. And here's another hint. As many as God calls, he justifies. Not as many as believe he justifies as many as he calls. He justifies. He called Abraham out of the idolatrous hills of the Ur of Chalde, And so, in the calling, Abraham was justified. A decade or so later, when he believed God about the promise, that didn't justify him by faith, but the trust that he demonstrated in God's promise was approved by God as being the right way to live, total faith in my promises. And it wasn't circumcision that God was pleased in and with, but Abraham's implicit trust in God. It didn't justify Abraham. It was just considered by God to be rectitude or the higher integration of human living, which is faith, apart from which is nothing but sin. Hence, And you're not supposed to be getting this. You're supposed to be going, hmm? This isn't, hmm, Pastor Brown, this is, hmm? Things that make you go, hmm? And then later it'll be things that make you go, hmm? So in closing, Paul says, because you, we, we have previously, that is, as preachers, as Christian Jewish teachers, or before we were even Christians, we were Jewish teachers. You and I both did this. We previously accused everybody both Jews and Greeks, of being under the power of sin. Under the power of sin. That's where we get apocalyptic thinking. Hupo hamartia. All human beings are under the power of sin. Paul is taking this somewhere. He's going to show that there, though all humankind was under the power of sin, the grace of God is a power that is greater than the power of sin. And the gift of God is eternal life for all in Jesus Christ, even though death was the wages of sin. So let's just read 9 and we'll be done with it because then 3.10 to 18 becomes a whole cascade of scriptures, quotes from the Psalms mostly, but from the Psalms, the Torah, the prophet, the law, and the prophets and the Psalms to demonstrate what universal hamartiology that all are under sin and have a radical incapacity to do anything about it. Call it, if you will, total depravity, the two in or the T in Calvin's tulip, which is a correct doctrine. What shall we conclude then? Are we better off? really, than the world that you think is deserving of God's wrath? Well, well, not in every respect. And then Paul says, wait a minute, because you, we, you and I, both of us, have previously accused everyone, both Jews and Greeks, of being under the power of sin. Then he goes from 3.10 to 18 and says, this is what we preached on. All have gone out of the way. There are none that understand Everyone has altogether turned away from God. And he goes into a universal Hamartiology, which leads to a universal soteriology, which becomes the power that breaks down the walls between Jewish Christians, some who are judging Gentiles, and Gentile Christians, some who are despising their Jewish Christian brothers. And that's Paul's aim, that's the analysis. So, Colleen, Matthews, you and me are both doing the same thing. We're doing an intentionality ana- analysis of Paul. <laughs> but the point is, and I'll leave you with this tonight. The point is, now the world is involved. Did you notice that? The whole world is involved. The whole world is involved. They're going to be judged with the wrath of God. They deserve it. You've sidelined a certain person here, though, teacher. His name is Jesus Christ. You've sidelined a second person here, teacher. He is the Holy Spirit of God. And you have not brought glory to a third person here, teacher, God the Father. You have failed to see that God's gospel is of the triune action, of the triune God, for the salvation and rectification of all creation. This changes the mission field erratically. This will take the missionary who went to a far off land to become a missionary because he really hates the people that are right near him. You know how many people are motivated to go to the mission field because of that? They hate the neighbor that lives right next door. They scream at their kids. The music's too loud. They leave garbage out for weeks. I hate them. I want to go to a far off land. I love those people. I have a burden for them. (laughs) Because how will they hear without a preacher? Paul says they already heard. In other words, hearing isn't how they're saved. They're saved because of what God did in Christ. Go tell them that. Well, you got to leave Romans 10. If I was Paul, I'd I'd keep going for six hours until Eutychus fell out of the balcony. And then I would raise Eutychus from the dead if I was Paul. But I'm not Paul, so we're done. Thank you, Father, for another session that we have in your word. This one, a challenging one. This one, we had to navigate some very treacherous territory, some very tricky territory. But we pray that by the sword wielded by the Spirit, that the path will have been successfully cut away the brush from the path so that we can walk on this path. Because the more we walk on this path, as unfamiliar as it is to us, as unfamiliar as it is to the Christian world today, to Christendom today, we will be so rewarded when we get to that wonderful clearing in which the lamb who takes away the sin of the world is seen by us. And every eye sees the one who was pierced. Every knee genuflex in humble adoration. Every tongue acknowledges to the glory of you, Father, that Yahweh is Yeshua, Jesus our Lord.